opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, well, We know who the hard left are. In the you know, ascendancy I, I, within, the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said so that we were right, right, to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation. Hard left wing position. Hard left. The 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 hard left. Hard left. Hard left. The hard left. The hard left. Hard left. The hard left. 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 Live from Russia, it's the Real Politic <laughs> Podcast. Oh, wow. Look at the Kremlin right here. I invoice George Soros for this, right? <laughs> it's a Soros-Putin collaboration, this project. we You know you know how independent the arts project funding is. You have to draw on multiple sources. It's a difficult time for us all. Thank God for George Soros and Vladimir Putin funding the lads. <laughs> the boys. God bless the two fucking boys. <laughs> so we've got me and Tom coming live from Kremlin. We've got yeah. Kieran coming live from where have you been assigned to, Kieran? Oh, the halls of Westminster. The oh, corridors yes. of power, that's where I operate. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And... That wasn't actually a metaphor, that's so rad. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we consult Kieran further on what has been happening inside the corridors of Westminster, the corridors of power, we need to introduce our special guest we've got on today. So, we've got our friend Tim McGowan on, who is a freelance journalist. I don't know, how would you like to be introduced, Tim? I, I'm, yeah, I'm a free, I was a freelance reporter in Mexico for a bunch of places, primarily Al Jazeera, but oh, yeah, I'm a freelancer. And, yeah. Uh, I traveled all over Latin America doing stupid things for money, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Hey, Tim. Hey, what's the crack? Did you see that old um, ugly win? Oh, God, yeah, that was brutal. That was brutal. <laughs> it was fun. But I had such a good time. I'm just back from the pub now. It's so good. <laughs> winning. It's so, so good. It was better than when we beat a big team, Frank. <laughs> nah, I don't know. The Arsenal win was fun. Like, yeah, but... Something about Genie Wijnaldum's goals just sent me wild. I can't <laughs> describe it. Yeah, he's wonderful. Such a... <laughs> the way he, like, the way he like, pounds his chest right above the heart and indeed Liver Bird, which are probably the same object at this point, is, is beautiful to me. Yeah, he's a beautiful, beautiful man. I've fallen completely head over heels in love with the man. He is just, he's everything I want out of a Liverpool player. Yeah, it's so, it's so true. Like, yeah, I suppose it saves you from having to spike yourself at speed and, and things like that in the, while in the pub, right? It didn't. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. I am Wyatt. I'm ready to go. Live from Pablo Escobar's basement. <laughs> he's still alive. He's still going. I'm, uh, was it? I'm Norwich's most prominent Pablo Escobar truther and uh, Pablo Escobar truther. <laughs> I, 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 I don't believe that he was a legend. Did you ever meet Escobar when, when you were out in Mexico? Yeah, I wish I had a funny reply to that. No, I did not. Um, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> <Got it. laughs> 
I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, he, he died in 1993, but his spirit lives on in my Sure, sure, he died in 1993. <laughs> That's the cover story that Soros is <laughs> So you're doing a master's at UEA, aren't you? That's correct, yeah. It's an illustrious place. Gi- Gi- I don't know how to say this guy's surname. Giles Corrin. Corrin? Corrin or Corrin? Corrin, I Corrin. think, yeah. Corrin. You see, this, you know, I'm Irish. I can't actually speak English properly. But Corrin was along to workshop his novel at UEA a few years ago. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. best of the best. The cream but of the crop. But he wasn't busy fucking his three-year-old <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, is that, is that libel? Sorry, I, I don't I don't know, but... The <laughs> libel has to be written down, man, you said. <laughs> we're fine, we're good. Does yeah. it? Does, is that true? Does libel have to be written down? Yeah, yeah, there's libel and there's slander. Is this slander? Yeah, that's slander. So, that's, so, well, it's true, but it's yeah, it's mostly true, so, well. so, so this is slander, and the piece for Andreas wrote is libel. Is that, that right? Lovely. Okay, I am looking forward to us putting that piece online. <laughs> I am really looking forward to that. So I'm in this illustrious hall of academia where Joyce Corrin got owned by the lads a few years ago. So it's good to be. <laughs> <laughs> and you're writing a novel, aren't you, on your on your masters? That's correct. Yeah, it's just based on a story that me, me and my friend Jonathan Levinson were doing over the course. Of, I'd say about two years in total. It was two years. Yeah, it was two years. We spent two years traveling to Costa Rica, which is sort of a crumbling oil hell. <laughs> it's 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 not a very nice place. Like it only it's only existed as a city for like sixty six years, so it doesn't have any like historic beauty or any ruins or any. Well, there's a, there's an ancient Totonaco pyramid near it, but the city itself is basically just as the sociologist from the area said, it went from a field to a city in six months in the fifties, and uh, sixty years later, after most of the oil has gone out of the place. The only thing growing there really are, honestly, like this is glib, but like the only thing growing there is basically crime rates and uh, tumour related to air pollution. Yeah, it's a very grim place. So uh, we had a big story about the legacy of oil production in the, in the city, but we couldn't get it together for a bunch of reasons, primary among them, like the way the news cycle concerning Mexico in the run of the US elections shifted completely towards your man, you know, uh, with the fucking wall and so on. And yeah. So stories about the country that, that really do get granular about the place just literally got walled off, you know, and, and um, I ended up moving here and, and decided to turn the article into a novel and um, away I go. It sounds really cool from what you've told me about it. Can you give us a brief sort of synopsis? Yeah, so it's about a recovering alcoholic Irish reporter who is not me at all. <laughs> <laughs> and his dead best friend Carlos who's based on a composite of reporters one of whom is, is from the same city as Carlos yeah. and it's based on, on a real life case of a, of a reporter who, who was murdered near, near where I live uh, he was a neighbour of mine we didn't know each other but he, he died about two blocks from where I live Oh, and uh, so I've decided to use this best friend character as a way into questions about press freedom in Mexico questions concerning your privileges as a foreign correspondent a dangerous environment I mean me and Jonathan, we were able to do stories that would have gotten people from the country itself into a lot more trouble than we actually got into. So I'm using the novel form as a way of interrogating the positions yeah. from speakers of foreign correspondents. You told me that Mexican journalists are a lot more likely to get killed than foreign ones. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so far this year, it's either six or seven Mexican journalists have been murdered this year. And I'm not sure if it's six or seven because the way the figures get presented, the CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists, only registers deaths of reporters if they are in full-time employment. And a couple of other categories like this, it's, 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 a, it's a little more specific and I made it out to be, but generally it's that. So if you're a freelancer, 
Or if you're someone whose main income would come from sizing a taxi driver, as was in the case with Moises Sanchez, who's decapitated about two years ago. Mostly, if you're declared in the tax system as a housewife, in the case of another woman reporter who was murdered last year, your name will not turn up in the list of dead journalists. So there's a guy a couple of weeks ago shot in a hammock in the Tierra Caliente region of Guerrero, and I'm not sure if he's been counted, but he was a reporter who was killed, so yeah. it was an epidemic of violence against journalists, an epidemic. Costa Rica's in Veracruz state, and during the gubernatorial term of Javier Duarte who enriched himself. During the gubernatorial term of Javier Duarte about 20 journalists were killed oh, by the state or organised crime or why not both because it's impossible to tell where one ends and the other begins sometimes. Wow. So yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's an epidemic of violence against uh, Mexican reporters. And is that what Lydia Cacho writes about in that um in that piece in The Sorrows of Mexico that you were telling us about. Yes, she does. Um, she writes quite quite powerfully about that um, because she is a phenomenon. Um, yes. Have you The Sorrows of Mexico that came out last year? Corbin went to the book launch with his wife. She's Mexican. Is it like a collection of essays? Then, is it? Yeah, that's right. It's some of the, the best journals, most respected journals in Mexico. And nice. it's a pretty decent compendium on some of the issues that really metastasized in the last 11 years of the drug war, which is no longer, which never really was a drug war anyway. It was always a war on poor people, to be honest with you. And yeah. as that fact ramifies the different social manifestations, whether it's a crackdown on press freedom, whether it's a crackdown on protesters, whether it's the disappearance of 43 students, or whether it's a ecological, well, essentially an ecological self-defense that you find in a place like Chiapas and Oaxaca, as, as all these elements start to come together and the reporting ramifies out from directly drug-related stuff to these issues, yeah. you've got a whole bunch of stories and a whole bunch of tendrils off the main trunk of the issue and, and this is a pretty decent primer and compendium, I mean it's pretty rad like in some some of the big names, the best one in it is Lydia Cacho okay. uh, she excerpted a bit of a journal, like a sort of a polished journal of her own uh, yeah, cool. and, and put it in so it gives you a sense of the lived experience of what it's like for Mexican reporters on the ground there, you know, and she's she's fucking rad actually, she, she's brilliant, like I met her a couple of times. Oh cool, okay I'm, I, yeah, I'm just looking, um, looking that chapter up in the book now Oh, here we go. Fragments from a reporter's journal. That's the one, yeah. I mean, I presume some of those fragments have been polished, because uh, no one's journal reads that well. No. Uh, unless, unless perhaps you're Lydia Cato. Tony Benn. His, ju- right, yeah. his diary is <laughs> of a shit. <laughs> so this starts off in a pretty eye-catching way. Fragments from a Reporter's Journal by Lydia Cacho. Um, first of all, I should tell you that in December 2006, I was tortured for 20 hours and then imprisoned. It happened because of my journalistic investigations into child pornography and the ties that Mexican governors, senators, police chiefs and businessmen had to the trafficking of women, girls and boys from across the continent. Wow. Yeah, the next sentence is pretty rad as well. No, it's like, though we now know that the orders would have murdered me and throw yeah. my body etc yeah, yeah. She, she, she's incredible like she, uh, i mean we went we went for pizzas with me, me, me and a few friends <laughs> the fucking war stories out of it were insane like back in the early 90s she was down in cancun having heard that pablo escobar was doing a conference fucking business meeting with um the the lads yeah uh, the product <laughs> i think it would have been the tijuana cartel at that point or i think i'm not quite sure is it since 1990 Mm. She was in this like villa in Cancun, which is like plastic beach paradise. The, the beach is like like the gorilla, sort of... the gorilla's album. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, 
That's, that, that, I knew that sentence wasn't mine. <laughs> <laughs> the beach is got like it looks like a fucking credit card ad, you know. <laughs> she hears it's gonna be at the villa, and she and her ex-husband, she's like, "You just drive, and I'll do everything else." And ex-husband's like, oh, "What the fuck?" So the girl, <laughs> she climbs up the back wall onto the roof, snaps a bunch of pictures of Pablo Escobar meeting with members of. Mexican organized crime. Oh wow! Uh, government and I think some 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 bend cops as well. You know, hops down off the wall, back in the car, and off they drive. Another thing she did for a book whose title escapes me in English and Spanish, which is embarrassing. Um, oh man! It was a wide ranging trip around the global sex trafficking industry, and um, she went undercover. As part of going undercover, she trained as a pole dancer. Oh really? Uh, yes. And then she travelled all over Central America and parts of India. Yeah, mostly India and, and Central America. And this is based on, like, PETA-related chat, to be honest with you. She would sneak into bars, pretend to be a former dancer who kind of missed the game, and, like, would that way win the confidence of people, whether they were current sex workers, their bosses, their customers. Like, She goes all in. Like, she is, she's insanely good. I think she's got about 12 books now or something like this. You yeah. have to keep track of the big three Mexican reporters are are all are all women reporters. One of one of the things that I have an issue with in Mexican reporting is, is like there's very few famous ones who are also like able to put aside their own sense of being a protagonist in their story. Yeah. The Mexican reporters who get murdered tend to be earning not very much money, tend to work for local newspapers, and tend to uncover the nexus between local government and organized crime and and pay with grave threats or, or, or their lives. There's an American reporter, Kathy Corker, and she's with the Associated Press. She's doing very deep research into this at the moment, and her book, which will come out in a couple of years, is going to be phenomenal. Coming back to my issue with more famous Mexican journalists, is that they, tend to, uh, they tend to wear their causes on their sleeve a bit. Lydia Cacho does not do that. She's all about um, the people she listens to. She does incredibly cool things that you know that you will never probably hear about because she's too busy telling the actual stories. What I found about reading your articles was that you don't put yourself at the forefront of the story. I, I know you have written more personal stuff, but in your reporting on Mexico, it is just that. It, it, it's reporting. I mean, I, I know, obviously no journalist is without politics and without some kind of motiv motivation to write, but it's not a gonzo thing. It's not a sort of drug war picker-esque Absolutely not. No, yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do that. I mean, the first year and a half that I was living there, I barely wrote a thing because I was still trying to figure out how it worked there, you know. How long were you there? I was there for three years and three months. Got back in September, so I moved from Mexico City to Norris, which is basically the opposite of Mexico City. <laughs> <laughs> and it's spinning quite a lot, you know. What's the crime rate like in Norwich? <laughs> uh, the duck got into trouble with the lads. <laughs> is Clive Lewis your MP? He certainly is. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Email him. Get in a clinic with him. Would you guys like to chat to Clive or something? Like, cause we could, I could fucking pull some lies on him and get him on the fucking show if you wanted, maybe. I think it's only <laughs> yes. Yes. We've gone after him so many times in the past. Idea. I think giving him a position on the podcast might be helpful. Him yeah. and Farage's fucked face. <laughs> yes. Together at last. His right hand it man, needs yeah. to happen. It, and the new vision of the Labour Party. 
Uh, yeah, Clive is the MP. I, I don't know. I don't know what he does really. Um, <laughs> so Resigns. That's a terrible thing to say. But I thought, I what he does, looks yeah. looks at his phone and goes, "Oh, not him again." Not. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, it's Owen again. <laughs> I just wanted to have like a night in. I just wanted to go on go on Twitter and 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 talk about shit with Farage's fuck face and watch a couple of kung fu movies. <laughs> Listen to the Wu Tang. Clan. Yeah. I don't want to be leader. Not now, Jesus! <laughs> I'm so out of the loop about what Clive Lewis gets up to. Is this is this legit? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he loves kung fu. He loves the Wu Tang. He, he loves Star away? Trek. Yeah, he does. He loves it. Is he trying oh, to? He calls West Streeting a jumped up turd. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. like, what else could you not love? No. <laughs> does he follow Farage's fucked face? Yeah, he, I know yeah, he. he they no, definitely like him. converse a few times. He follows him. Yeah. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> you kept Blackpool. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, God, he, he follows worse accounts from that though. Clive Lewis follows like Malmentum and all this shit. Where they're just, oh, it, God. It's just like made by weird old people like obsessed with like 1970s children TV who frequently make racist comments with not a hint of irony. Under the guise of being leftists. Or not, but like parodying leftist let's yeah. not get into this <laughs> yeah fuck it it's a rabbit hole but I like it um, <laughs> <laughs> true that there's a scurrilous rumour there's an area of orange called the golden triangle so called because where coffee prices are like high or whatever your man uh, Clive used to call it the golden flange for some reason <laughs> oh my god <laughs> is that a thing that <laughs> doesn't sound like a thing um, that doesn't sound normal. It's incredible. Yeah. It sounds, doesn't sound Clive. I don't know what Clive is like. He strikes me as like, I was excited about him for a bit. He was like G.I. Joe in Tweed. But then it <laughs> turns out to be that inside and outside, which is a problem. I can't believe he never caught him on BBC Inside Out Northeast, where he did the things for Norfolk. He was doing little clips from the garden show and would go about the city centre. And that's oh. where he got his media skills from. Great <laughs> pedestrianisation as well, I suspect. <laughs> Traders need access to Dixons. <laughs> no, I'm surprised not seeing Owen Jones around here either because you know we've got problems like you know, we've got a Greg's and, and uh... that's all you need. <laughs> like his Doncaster piece. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I want to just take the time to pay tribute to, and what a brilliant, magnificent, and Really, you know, clear-minded, impressive piece that Doncaster work was from Owen Jones. I know he gets a lot of shit, but least of all from this podcast, but I'd like to say that we are 100% unequivocally pro-Doncaster is racist. <laughs> what, what are your reasons for this, this judgment on Doncaster? 69% voted leave. I mean, that's the reasoning Owen Jones uses, and that's the reasoning I agree with. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry to, to our, our um, Benite leave voting constituency <laughs> who listens to this podcast. I just want to ensure that is absolutely not what I believe. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> I want to clear that up. It was so much like, oh my god, is, is he coming out in favour of Owen Jones? No. No, no, never. <laughs> no, no, never, no more. Absolutely not. Uh, courageous <laughs> journalism, though, going all the way to Doncaster. The, from... the badlands of Doncaster. Yeah. I mean, fuck the cartels. That's yeah, well, Tim, you know the risks terrifying. of going to dangerous, neglected areas. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to 
when Cassian Vera died. Cruz compared to Doncaster, I mean, you must have so much admiration for <laughs> Owen Jones. Oh, I mean, like 69% people voted to leave in Doncaster. That's... Out of 420 polled, of course. I wouldn't vote <laughs> <fuck> that. <laughs> 420. <laughs> I didn't even clock 69%. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking CSI Doncaster. No, I'm... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's the cartel leader in Doncaster? Philip Davis's dad. <laughs> Genuinely, the MP... No, it's not the MP, the mayor for Doncaster. Not for the Tories, but for the English Democrats. Was <laughs> Philip <laughs> Davis's dad. Really? Yeah, I, the I only can't... elected... English Democrat in the country. I can't believe there are other people in the English Democrats than that weird Enoch fanboy I knew at uni. <laughs> he is incredible, and his poetry <laughs> deserves it. Oh, yeah, the poetry is... <laughs> A man who no one expected to be married. <laughs> <laughs> Enoch! Enoch Powell! Yeah, incredible. <laughs> oh, God. He also yeah, wore, he, like, bright yellow suits. He, had, he certainly like, had a reputation on campus amongst people and stuff for his, his views. He did, and but after it's... a while I was just like, this guy's a racist, why are we just humouring him? Like, he, he's just like, <laughs> he's, no, no, yeah, it's just he... legitimate concerns. I'm like, this isn't even funny. Like, fuck this shit. <laughs> uh, what was I mean, it is on? funny. <laughs> Sorry, what was his what? MO? Oh, he was yeah. a member of the English Democrats who wanted there to be an English parliament and stuff. Yeah, he was just like, yeah, he wanted immigration reduced, didn't like Labour, he didn't like the Tories, he was not a racist... The English Democrats, you know, it says on their website, are a non-racist party. Which usually means that they are indeed <laughs> racist. <laughs> Why would you need to... Uh, Remind people, that, yeah. you know. <laughs> We're not racist, but, you know, we need to get all the immigrants out. Just fucking, you know, come on now. The Real Politic podcast is a non-communist podcast. <laughs> anti, just not. <laughs> so what, what else has been happening in the world of politics, Kieran? Well, our dear friend Luke Akers <laughs> has unfortunately been booted off his oh. CLP chair, was it? At the yeah. AGM by agents acting under the auspices of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. <laughs> <laughs> thus proving his long-held belief of the nefarious influence of Russia on British politics. <laughs> they are the greatest threat to us and the greatest threat to Luke Akerst because they hold the key to curing his incurable lobster disease. <laughs> I, I mean, I, don't, I barely know. I mean, Luke Akerst is shit. Why exactly? I'm new here. He's like a... He's hard <laughs> labour right. Like Dennis Healyite. Labour first... Not even really a social democrat. It's a weird ideological grounding, the Labour right, I think. It's I don't understand. It's really hard line. Like, they it's just love almost, nukes. It's, yeah, they love nukes. <laughs> he used to they work for BAE, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did. Yeah, they're all like, low the immigrant numbers. He's to the right of Anna Subri. Probably <laughs> to the right of Ken Clark. He's like in the middle of the Conservative Party. That's how but right I mean, he is. But I mean, Anna Subri and Ken Clark are firebrand radicals and the most progressive people ever to walk this earth. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, there's <laughs> Tony Benn, there's Anna Subri. When we're thinking of influential left-wing thinkers. Subs. 
Soobs. Who doesn't love Soobs? Who doesn't like possibly the refugees who she's routinely voted to fuck over? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but you know, that they might love her as well. They might, you know, her heart is in the right place. It's just well, they she... don't have the vote. Yeah, <laughs> <That's> fine. <laughs> I mean, Illegals. <laughs> <laughs> she's ventriloquizing our legitimate concerns. <laughs> 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 Yeah, so Luke Akehurst has sadly been booted off his CLP committee by Russia. I mean, it's a terrible shame. We tried to put in a word for Luke, but we were overruled. In the, in yeah, the, in I the mean, Kremlin the real politic block vote mysteriously got lost in the post. Like, <laughs> I thought we'd taken them over. I thought our entrism had given us at least a majority control of Luke Akehurst's CLP. <laughs> so why we couldn't save someone who is an invaluable ally to this podcast and to what we stand for. It, it breaks my heart. As Luke Akehurst has said in the past, like he has lots of good friends on the hard left, and I think we are a shining example of that. We can put aside our political differences and rally around our friend Luke in this difficult time. I genuinely think it's not out of reason to think that he could be on this podcast in, le- in five, ten episodes' time. Him and McTurnan. <laughs> oh my god. But it's, it's great, they've both just kind of been reduced to a meme. Like, McTurnan is just Tory, and <laughs> Luke Akehurst is just Russia. <laughs> if you do this with everyone, we've got a plan, we've got a strategy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, it's kind of the Linton Crosby strategy, isn't it? You just say one thing over and over and over again until you cannot dissociate the person from that idea. So next, it's Stephen Kinnock and Putin. <laughs> yes, this is this is how Tories win elections. So I think it's about time Labour looked into the Linton Crosby playbook. Oh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to look deep into his playbook. He plays some dirty tricks. Well, like not, in Australia, he played some fucking dirty tricks. What, what what did he do in Australia? Well, his most famous thing was the USS Tamper incident, where to win the election in 2002 for John Howard, he um, fabricated a story entirely about refugees throwing their children over boats to stay aboard and to I get mean, onto the mainland of Australia. And okay, by the I time mean, it was disproved, they'd won the election. I don't think we should do the racist stuff then. I mean, I'm not saying we should follow that quite fash side of the... the yeah, it's pretty insanely fash. I'm saying we should cut out the majority of the Linton Crosby playbook, burn all the pages which are, you know, like the, sorry, the <laughs> Zach Goldsmith campaign and stuff. Like, just, you know, get rid of all that and just look at the stuff that's just about ruthlessly smearing your opponents and put our own politically correct spin on it. I think when it comes to the edit, can we put the Zach Goldsmith song back in here? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Zach Goldsmith did the infectious. Before we get back on to like, I mean, there might actually think of a couple more like political things we could discuss. But... There's that awful progress thing where oh, they did what? the profiles of like Bergen and Rebecca Long Bailey and Lewis oh, really? and all that. Oh, yeah, okay. Rental posted it before. They what are, were they like, saying and stuff? What kind of like uh... just talking about how the Corbynist tendency is privileged and therefore illegitimate. <laughs> oh, talking about their private school backgrounds and completely ignoring Rebecca Long Bailey's background on McDonald's background or Abbott's background or anyone like that focusing on the ones who you know went to Oxford and that kind of thing trying to skewer it as this illegitimate tendency in the party whereas who they represent is somehow more associated with the working class yeah really you know your Richard Angels your Alison McGovern's your John Woodcock's are all of a sudden trying to take the mantle of the voice of the working class by having no appeal whatsoever outside of their own constituencies and even then Tom Malay's Forever retweeted it out before. It was talking about how Richard Bergen 
was like the nephew of an MP and went to Oxford to do English literature and all that. <laughs> the sort bastard! Of thing. English literature. Exactly. The, the, the common people don't read quote unquote books, whatever <laughs> they are. Like, is that a book? Is that like a fucking type of croissant or crash? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you didn't see like... Chaucer opening up Shaw Start Centres. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, who, who even needs the English language when you can have barely intelligible racist grunts? <laughs> or <laughs> I just known Progress magazine. <laughs> <laughs> the sort of distinction between progress and the like, blue label lot is ever blurring. It's just like, we don't like Corbyn, fucking immigrants, they're bad. Like fucking, we need we need bold new ideas. We need a, an end to the old way. Inclusive civic nationalism. <laughs> That's what we need. Inclusive civic nationalism. Uh, it rots. It rots my brain. The whole thing. I can't take it. Like, what would be fun for an episode in future is if we get like back copies of. Progress magazine from about 2013, 2014. They're talking about, you know, Manuel Valls and Matteo Renzi. Like all the great centrist hopes of Europe turning the tide. Have a little bit of a book review. Left in a estate. Left behind. Like, a I haze of to... centrist yeah. euphoria. Left behind, I think, is the uh, title of Nick Cohen's new book. Taking a oh. page out of the evangelical playbook. Oh my god. Do we even need to go into how much either of us or any of us hate Nick Cohen? Is, it, is this <laughs> yeah. the time? Has he ever come just... up on the show before? Nick he, Cohen. He, I think he must have come up before, surely. We've just. He, pr- he probably has. I thought he yeah. said, has he ever come on the show before? I was oh, like, no. oh, yeah, I agree to a sheriff <laughs> with uh, us, Islamo-fascists. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's shit, isn't he? He, he? he hasn't even clocked that fucking Julian Assange isn't left-wing and is a libertarian. Which is left-wing, according to Nick Cohen, because everything is left-wing, according to Nick Cohen, that he doesn't like, apart from him, and he considers himself to be left-wing. <laughs> because liberal is left wing to him but far left is left of liberal and far right is far left and oh it's a horseshoe <laughs> yeah yeah the famous yeah. horseshoe theory i love that thing it's so it's so <laughs> like simplifying i i, oh, I everything I, makes I sense to realize why i am bad as a lad of politics it's good you know how <laughs> close to the nazis but different. Yeah, but how different? See, that's the thing about the horseshoe theory. If you're going to push the idea that the further left you go, the closer to the right, you may as well make it a circle. Why does there have to still be that unbridgeable gap? If you're yeah. insisting that it's so bad to be so far left that it's far right, it's not a horseshoe. It, it, it is the... Oh, yeah. They really it's should stupid. have gone further with that. I mean, there's also... There's, I shouldn't really say this on a left-wing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible way to begin a sentence. No, but, um, <laughs> the time that um, Altisair danced pirouettes trying to defend the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact, if they're going to go all the way with this horseshoe theory business, they need to do some proper digging and find moments like Altisair saying, no, it's actually good that the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact happened. So, you know, like they're not even doing their own fucking bullshit centrist trolls correctly spoken. <laughs> well to be fair to Nick Cohen we he can referenced have. that in like his last garbage fucking article about Assange where he was talking about like the foreign office saying after the Molotov Ribbentrop pact that all isms are wasms and he's just like oh shut the fuck up <laughs> like when you're using that not to like justify this greater theory but just to make this pithy little quote about how all bad things are the same just oh, 
Jesus Christ. Crawl back into your fucking pond, you horrible fucking turtle. <laughs> Get out of my house, Nick. <laughs> but they're also the path, so that's good, you know. Isn't there it? is a third way. There's a third way. <laughs> Maybe isn't on the walls. Third position. Is and that way. is the third way of Muammar Gaddafi. <laughs> <laughs> We've already gone pro Mugabe on our last episode. Pro Gaddafi is the natural next step. <laughs> I would have gone the other way around. Like, Gaddafi was actually good. That's... <laughs> what, what are you saying about Comrade Mugabe here? <laughs> Tread lightly. I just thought it was easier to rehabilitate Gaddafi than Mugabe. I watched an interview with Mugabe where they were like, so what do you think has been like the issue with Zimbabwe's economy in the last few years? And he was just like, oh, we went too capitalist. <laughs> we let the markets too far into public life. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I am one. amazed he can still talk. <laughs> <laughs> is he like 93 or something? He's like extremely how old. old. He's extremely Wearing old. Wearing his suits have pictures of his face on, you know. Just, just, <laughs> and it just it didn't come out recently. He said he was like, he was going to keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, so yeah, he's, he's been president since 1980. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, thank you, Thatcher. Probably our <laughs> greatest enduring legacy is the Mugabe Republic of Zimbabwe. <laughs> So thank you very much. But <laughs> I, I checked there was the rumours came this week that he died again. This he died again? He died yeah. before? Well, yeah. How many yeah. times? This guy. He keeps on dying and coming back to life and he's still going. And I decided to get into like Zimbabwe Twitter a little bit. And, like, there's all these rumours about like, is President Mugabe blind? And it shows these like state visits where he goes to shake someone's hand and just misses completely. Like, <laughs> it's, so, it's quite sad to watch. Oh, I'm mean, just like no. diving past someone and missing the camera quickly moving. I did follow Zanu PF on Twitter, but it doesn't have a blue tick, and I don't know if it's the real account. It's all just—it's it, great. It's, it, it's all just like fucking just shitting on white people. It's like it's some good shit. Um, unofficial Zanu PF account. Yeah. And then it was like follow Morgan Shangarai. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> you got the wrong guy. <laughs> Do I look like a Shanghai supporter to you? Oh my god, do you remember when they ran his car off the road? Yeah. Like, he looked like he was going to win the 2008 election, and then oh, like yeah. they ran his car off the road and killed his wife. <laughs> what oh. the fuck? And then they made him deputy prime minister after that. <laughs> I didn't know that they killed his wife during <laughs> yeah. that election. No. I know there was loads of violence. Quarters, it directed but... against the man himself, it Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the Real Politic podcast condones that aspect of Mugabe's regime. I fucking do, man. Shangri's a liberal. Fuck that guy. I get banged, you know? <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. Well, well, let's continue our nuanced discussion of former colonial uh, countries then. So, people you thought were bad when you were 14 are actually good. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tim, you, as we've already established, have spent three years in Mexico, a lot of the time, which you were reporting quite extensively on stuff that was going on, particularly pertaining to the drug wars, to the epidemic of addiction, to poverty and inequality in the country, and the Pope. The Pope, yeah. Um, (laughs) 
That's the thing about reporting, which is great, is that even if an event comes along that you're not necessarily particularly struck by, you use it as a hook, essentially, you know. So the Pope's coming, you're like, okay, cool. Not a massive fan of church because I'm from Ireland. I don't need to explain really why. But um, it was it, what happens when, that happens when, when a, a massive figure arrives in the country, whether it was Obama visiting Cuba or the Rolling Stones going to Cuba with which I also covered. Pope comes to Mexico, you're like, okay, where's where his itinerary to? So he's going to Juarez, he's going to Ecatepec, he's going to Michoacan. He picked a pretty decent itinerary, actually. It was like stopping points on Mexico's big atlas of shame and horror. That's very in keeping with Pope Francis's kind of social justice conscious approach. Yeah, he was pretty good. His first day in the place, he gave a sermon at the Metropolitan Cathedral with all the boys, the president, cabinet and the hierarchy of the Mexican Catholic Church and he really went to town on the country. He, he described organised crime as a cancer which had metastasized to every organ in the system. And, and <laughs> in saying this, what, what he did was he shifted the discourse away from notions of organised crime being the issue to corruption, impunity and inequality being... Yeah. That is the crux of the matter. You have written about how he made it clear that the war on drugs was not simply just a militarised war on the drug trade, but a social issue, which encompasses many endemic social problems. Right. I mean, if it was a war on drugs, it would have ended in six months in 2006, because they would have just fucking nabbed all the kingpins, extradited them to the United States, because that's what happens every time. A drug war is never necessarily the idea of the country through which the items are being trafficked or in which those items are being produced. I mean, if you look at the late 80s, early 90s in Colombia, I mean, how much of a neoliberalizing figure Gaviria was during the Pablo Escobar years, for example, and how much of his efforts to tackle the Medellin cartel and to a less degree the Cali cartel were an attempt to make Colombia look like an appreciable sort of landing strip for foreign economic interest. Same case in Mexico. The, the idea that like this modern, privatised, huge potential marketplace for the United States and for Canada after NAFTA from in the mid-90s, the idea that this place had to develop in some way was most the narrative behind cleaning up the massive cartel. Uh, it, 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 like, so basically, if it was a war on drugs, really, the main guys would have been gone the first six months of Operation Mitchell Can at the end of Ted and it would have been over. The war on drugs is an illusion. Right? This goes back to an apocryphal conversation that the then president, Felipe Calderon, had with his generals in 2006, who proposed the idea of militarizing the war on drugs, going into his home state of Michoacan and uh, cleaning up the streets, as it were. And Calderon said to one of the generals, like, I don't really understand the point of this operation. What is the point of this operation? The general says is that people know this. Yeah. It's, like, it's pure spectacle. Throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, the biggest drug cartel in the country was the Mexican army. Is there kind of a symbiotic relationship between the Mexican authorities and the drug cartels? Yeah, I mean, the way, the way to think of Mexico, right, is a, a series of independent fiefs. Let's take the example of Veracruz, where you have Federal Highway 180, the NAFTA highway, which goes all the way from Tabasco to the US border. Got huge oil reserves, the Great Trafficking Corridor, everything like that. And there's a saying in the country like, where there's money, there's mafia. That's like a thing that people say in Mexico City the whole goddamn time. And yeah. in the case of Veracruz, like, there's a bunch of money, so a bunch of cartels, you know, not even a bunch of cartels, that's like a false DEA influence picture. In fact, there's only one true cartel left, as a friend of mine, Alejandro Stulman, once said, a security analyst. And yeah, actually, he's quoted quite extensively in your articles, isn't he? Yeah, we don't really talk anymore. Uh, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> uh, well, it's my fault, really. Uh, we'll get to that. 
Um, okay. <laughs> the rambling point that I'm kind of making here is that in a country where the average industrial wage is about $160 a month and where there's huge unequally distributed wealth and where there's a huge unemployment problem. For example, in Costa Rica, the city that I'm writing about in my novel at the moment, after a bunch of US companies, Delschum and, and Franco-German companies, Dell Schumberger, Weatherford, Baker Hughes, were all operating in the area. When oil prices hit the toilet, they all pulled out. The number of taxi drivers in the city went from 2,000 to 4,000 oh, wow. over the course of like 18 months. So what we have is like where there's an unemployment problem, you'll have people turning to the only available options. So a kind of casualization of labour and uh, people who are trained in skilled professions having to downgrade their standard of living. Precisely, yeah. So this like emerging middle class suddenly is no longer an emerging middle class. Imagine what's happening further down the social scale where you got, this example I would use, you're a 16 year old kid, you're going to a school that is basically no more than a holding pen, learning basically nothing. And your options afterwards are to turn chickens on on a spit for 60 hours a week and make $160 per month. Or you got some guy who comes to you and he says, right, here's a shiny phone, here's a shiny gun, stand on this corner, here's $160 a week. It is not even a choice, you know what I mean? Yeah. The point that I've, like, I made in my reporting from the very beginning is that what we're dealing with is like, it's not a war on drugs, it's a war on poor people, you know? Yeah, and that's hardly any different from the American war on drugs, except yes. that... There's more widespread poverty in Mexico. Well, it's just just over half the country lives in poverty. Yeah. Just over half. It's not quite 51%. It's like 50.65 or something like that at the last time I checked. It's staggering. It's pretty fucked up, yeah. And, and you know, li- living there living there was intriguing because you've got your hipster bars and you got your fucking moustache wax emporiums. <laughs> but, like... I bet you had a good time with I that. had a fucking rad time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just for those who, who haven't ever seen what Tim looks like, he has a fucking magnificent moustache. Oh, that's really kind, yeah. Um, I, I, I do what I can, you know. Um, whereas I have. But no, like, I mean, and you know, I, I love these little social hieroglyphics that you can stumble across, but like, you go on Spotify and, and you look at like some remix playlist that's like Fabric Live or something like that. The place where like, Fabric Live 36 is listened to second most is Mexico City. So you got a thriving subculture, you got all sorts of wonderful, exciting things happen. You got like a bunch of American kids who can't afford to live in cool cities in in the United States, moving to Mexico City to do their thing. Great. Got 40-story skyscrapers and it looks like a mixture between, Mexico City looks like a mixture between Chicago, 19th century Paris and hell, basically. Oh, wow. It went in the best possible way. Like, that's not an insult. Like, I, most wonderful. <laughs> that like incomprehensible city geography is an inscription of massive social inequality. Like, the way to explain it is that 2013 they filmed Elysium, the Matt Damon movie. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that where all the rich people live up in the sky yeah. in like nice, the nice thing, and, right. and and they have loads of healthcare. And the people on the ground don't. Yeah, and the people on the ground are living in blasted desert hell. They filmed both sections of that film in Mexico City. What's the health service like? I imagine it's somewhat underfunded, but do they have a national health service? Unlike I think two, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, there's three public health, but almost three public health for all. It, okay. it is what it is. It's a country of 120 million people. Quite a yeah. lot of them live in poverty. It's over Spain. <laughs> my, my mate Fernando passed away last summer in one of these public hospitals. He didn't have a great time. Mm. Uh, but he had some very funny stories. At the, um, I, I, you know, he was quite sick for a long time. Um, oh, really? Like there was, there was one, there was one night. Um, one night, like a guy comes in and he's like missing an eye and stabbed to bits and oh, God, weeping out of his remaining eye. And Fernando's there, like, fuck's sake, like, I'm never gonna get to sleep with this. 
crying, one-eyed, bleeding man. <laughs> yeah. They move up to theater to be operated. The, the, the kid was missing the eye and stuff. He was just quite scared the people who attacked him were going to track him down. He, he was a gang member, Fernando reckoned. This guy goes out. <laughs> fucking next guy has come in, has five bullets in his chest. Fernando's like, for fuck's sake, like. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> yeah, like, the thing, like, you, it's about how much money you have, you know? Like, you're not going to spend your nights in a ward with other people who are living precarious and violent lives if you can afford not to, you know? It's because Fernando had a similar income level to the chaps who'd been attacked that he was there at all, you know? So Chapo likes to say that money's what makes the dogs dance, and um, I've never seen a country in which the action of financial background or capital assets. I've never seen a country where it is dramatised with quite such flesh and blood intensity all around you all the time. The Marx talks about social hieroglyphics at the beginning of Das Kapital really early on. I feel as though like you could just uh, spend a lifetime studying social phenomena all around you, you know, and, and, and unlock a whole bible of secrets about the way capital operates in a world of untrammeled neoliberalism, you know. To a great extent, does a large amount of Mexico's wealth in a kind of neo-colonialist fashion go out of the country to large companies from the global north. That'd be a huge analysis to make. I, I don't have the numbers back, but, but what I do know is that there would not be tremendous violence over production and transport of narcotics if the US market just north of the border weren't so enormous. You know, but it is at this point there's a degree of tail wagging the dog. Like I mean, the, like last couple of years, Don Winslow's written quite well about this. But fentanyl epidemic. My friend Azam Ahmed, he's a New York Times guy. He wrote about fentanyl as well. It was a drug that Prince overdosed on by accident. All right. It's an opioid, and because in the United States so many states are moving towards legalization and because that basically renders the marijuana producing regions of Mexico like uh, the Golden Triangle in good shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Durango, Chihuahua, Sinaloa, Sonora is like a four-state area. They produce a lot of marijuana. They're no longer profitable. So what they flog instead is opioid-based drugs. And so that heroin overdose, fentanyl overdose epidemic in the United States, it's because demand has been reduced for weed. Dudes down south have to make their profit margin. So they shift their production to another supply. And uh, the market just keeps fucking money north. You know. So I, I see the drug trade is more of a metaphor for me for the way that capital operates in between north and south then yeah. it is an actual thing of interest to me in itself. This might be a good point to start talking about Cartel Land, which is the yeah. film that we all watched in preparation yeah, what for this episode. You like it? I thought it was interesting, but I um, thought it focused too heavily on the people on the American side. And didn't you tell me that the film was originally going to focus solely on the American militia yeah. group? If not solely, then it was going to be a much larger percentage. But there's a chap called Hans Maximo. He's a German photographer and videographer. He's fucking brilliant. Like He's really heroic. Vice did a wonderful documentary about the 43 students in Guerrero. Who um, disappeared. Oh, yeah. So Vice Mexico, Vice News Bureau, before they shut, they did a wonderful documentary about the 43 students who disappeared from Iguala in 2014. And uh, best footage in that fucking documentary is all hands like. The guy risked smoke inhalation and bullet wounds and all sorts to get his pictures. He's, he's a hero. So he had a huge influence on the guys. 
producing Cartel Lands. Yeah, he said that we should move the focus away from the US border to Michoacan. I thought whilst it was a compelling narrative in its own right to some extent, I, I thought that once you kind of really thought about the politics of the guys on the American side of the border, oh, yeah. well, not just if you really thought about it, I mean, they were quite transparently a very, very right-wing yeah. group, and even though the main guy presents himself as quite sort of reasonable, you yeah, see... legitimate concerns, no? Like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> you see them all together, and you know, their rhetoric is violently racist, and even though they say they've shifted their focus onto combating crime rather than sending undocumented migrants back, I think it's still probably motivated to a great extent by a sheer kind of visceral hatred of Mexican people taking our jobs and... Yeah, it's that Schrodinger's migrant thing that goes around, isn't it? Like the mysterious undocumented guy or woman who is simultaneously too lazy to work and stealing a lot of our jobs at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The head guy of the militia, he has that little moment when he slightly goes off a little bit about when he's having the cigarette and he's talking about kind of, you know, they're undocumented and taking our jobs. And it kind of, the documentary and the editing particularly focus on that little kind of throw out that he has and stuff, you know. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. He loses his cool. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they've got that kind of anti-immigrant So I I just questioned, although it's a great looking film, it's really awesome artfully made and it's yeah, a very, very cinematic, cinematic setting of those areas of Mexico and the United States but I did question why these people sort of deserved airtime any more than kind of any other far-right group in America. Yeah, the movie's got a very different complexion now that we're in Trumplandia, I think. And you, you know the guys who made this movie, don't you? Yeah, I ran into them on, on one of the first stories that I ever reported. We were talking about precisely that thing of so what happens in Cartel Land. It takes place in the Tierra Caliente region, which is the first place that was invaded by the Mexican state in 2006 because of very violent views between Familia Michoacán and the Caballeros Templarios. It got really bad there and stayed bad despite military intervention. The only thing that worked to combat crime was when in... I'm sorry, the movie's from 2015. Yeah, it was when in May 2014 vigilante groups were achieving such great gains against the local crime organisations that the Mexican government was like, you guys are no longer illegal. You guys yeah. are this force. That's essentially what happened. So I went down there in May with another chap with my first big story, I thought. And then we were observing the first training sessions of the new Fuerza Rural. I've never seen so many guns in one place. Like, not, <laughs> not, not in a movie, man. Like They were training out in a like a, a ranch um, on the outskirts of Tepecatepec, about 10 hours from anywhere. One of the farmhouses had been converted into an arsenal, guarded by a woman sitting behind the desk in a police uniform. And, and like we were like, oh, can we have a look in there? Like, no, you can't have a look. And like, I can see from fucking out here. Like, it's just four or 15 rifles in a gleaming row from one end of the fucking farm farm warehouse dealer. It was hilarious. At the same time, they're getting all the guys who've been vigilantes before to register their existing weapons, hand them over and be retooled as a local police force. So you got chaps turning up with, like, everything from ordinary hunting rifles to fucking pearl-handled cold 45s to, like, actual fucking Kalashnikovs. I was just, I was just turning up and they're like, yeah, this is me, this is the thing I have. I will now be a cop instead of a lad. Who <laughs> 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 they're hiding of their personal stash in return for a uh, police issue one. What happens then is they have a training session. Some Mexican federal police from the city come there and they're like, "We're going to show these guys how to get in and out of cars." Basically. Yeah, because you gotta you gotta gain and out of it, right? And position yourself and cover the guys getting out. And there's a whole thing, you know, two at the top in the back of the pickup covering to its back covering out that side and everyone gets down together and it's 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 it's, it's groovy you know but the people involved in this training session were the most motley crew of lads 
ever seen in my life. One shaft with a fucking ruby ring and a coke nail and an extremely dyed black mustache. <laughs> a cop, like, what the fuck? And the trainer was visibly frustrated because halfway through this training session, a cow got out of the field. The two 14-year-old kids were the only ones who were deemed like trustworthy enough to hustle the cow back in the field. So the training session was called off because of a cow for a bit, just hilarious. <laughs> so they were watching this, like we're, we're watching this. Me and my friend, like colleague, like what the fuck, like. And uh, these two ruddy-faced Americans are also watching. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of getting a bit overexcited here. <laughs> yeah, I said to like, oh, are you guys reporting also? Like, uh, yeah, we're making a film. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you have to mean to spend ages here. Like, yeah, we've been here for nine months. <laughs> Oh my god! I was like, I thought I was super hardcore, you know, for the day. (laughs) That's what you were saying to me, isn't it? You're nowhere near the hardest of the core. There's, there's much harder core. When I was, I was praising your hardcore reportage. Jeez, I'm a baby, man. You know, like the the things about it is like I'm not attracted to violence. Like when I was, when I was there doing this kind of adrenaline fueled story. You know, as I said, like I've never seen so many guns in my life. It's a good thing to say on a podcast, or it's a good thing to say in a pub, or whatever, or it frightens people in your creative writing program. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it strikes me as being extremely beside the point. Yeah. For what I want to do, the guys like Matt Heineman, who directed Cartel and who's now in Raqqa or has been to Raqqa for City of Shadows, they're serious lads, you know, and I have big props to them. What I was about in Mexico was about social issues and yeah 10 years after this stupid military operation against poor people the country had been utterly poisoned by its own war against itself and there in Michigan look at all these guns and funny things happening or whatever you know you feel a bit gonzo for about seven minutes and after those seven minutes you realize the people around you are not background actors in the subjective drama of you writing about them you know you go away at the end of the day. They have to get up tomorrow and do the same shit every day, you know? Like, we had people showing us around the place who would switch to English because they saw someone walking down the street in the opposite direction. They didn't trust that person, so they'd, and they didn't want to say anything that would implicate them and get them yeah. in At night, the streets would be empty in this town type of catapult. The town would be empty for, like, a bunch of kids in huge armor-plated pickup trucks driving around blasting band of music. How does it feel if you're a teenager trying to do your homework with that happening around you and, and knowing that like any minute one of your mates is going to call you saying they're in trouble or god forbid they break into your house or whatever you know what i mean like how does it feel to live with that texture you know and so you sit there and you take it all and you watch it all you're like oh this is a great story to tell someone later or whatever you know yeah that's so beside the point and the outlets i worked for yeah as a reporter i wasn't really an opinions guy or whatever I'm not attracted to that anyway because, like, your job, if you've got any kind of privilege or any kind of foreign correspondent ring of fire around you, your job is to just amplify the frequencies of the stories that would not otherwise get out there, you know? Yeah, I definitely think that approach is evident in your writing that I've read, which does seem to afford a particular focus to very marginalised people. Yeah. And I think your piece about... Um, the kids, uh, the your, your pe- Yeah, your piece about the clinic in Michigan for recovering drug addicts. I think that that was really exemplary of this very like human approach to reporting on these stories. I think you should probably say like Kieran's got to go in a second. Yeah, by the way. sorry, Kieran. Oh no, it's fine. I don't want to like butt in at any point. Like all of this is absolutely captivating, and I've like sat here just in complete awe of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, I've been so hesitant to quite like, mention that I've got to go, but, like, I, I, I don't want to. 
<laughs> I really like that much. I want to just keep listening and listening and listening. Cause it's like it's it's the first time I've really talked about a lot of it, so I'm kind of like it's all coming out in a massive. No, it's group. really good. Like the bulk of this feels like a real politically minded episode, rather than like a continual showdown against political enemies. Yeah, which is, which is really good. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, loved it. Loved all of it. Oh, thank you. It'll be great. Oh, absolutely. Go to the halls of Westminster and start a oh, fight with some lads. That is absolutely <laughs> our plan. Like, the second you were down in London, drop me a text straight away. Yeah, awesome. man, likewise. I'll see you at Liverpool Street, and, and from there we'll, uh, I don't know, find wherever it is that Luke Akehurst lives. Put <laughs> <laughs> him down. Yeah. <laughs> wanna... And just shout Russia. Like, just, <laughs> it's like, stand outside his house screaming, Russia! Before I leave, actually, I have got, like, one thing from the group chat about Paul Mason. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Mason quote tweet, where he's agreed with Louise Mensch on the idea that <laughs> Vladimir Putin has declared war on America and the NATO charter <laughs> should be invoked for that very reason. <laughs> so Paul Mason is calling for war with Russia. Russia! With that, Jesus I'm happy to go. Oh, oh my god. Okay. Take care, Kieran, Th- thank you very much, Kieran, for breaking right. that explosive Continue revelation. this conversation and like just continue it all night as much as you can get out of it. Get three episodes out of it. Absolutely. Like, it's brilliant. I don't want to interrupt any more of it, but it's I'm been a pleasure. I'm loving it as well. Um, you too, bro. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Talk yeah, to you soon. Thanks for joining us, man. All right. Take care. Take right. care. Bye, man. Arrivederci. Okay, so we recorded so much good shit with Tim that we're going to do another episode. So until next time, comrades. It's been a very vapey day. It's crowdsourcing.